Good morning. If you were with us last week, you know the, the good news that Barrett shared that Jackson and Audrey Shamblin will be with us later this month to uh, begin work as our student minister. We are thrilled with that. So their picture is in the in the bulletin. If you missed that and you can keep praying for them, you know, leaving one church, moving to another is uh, not an easy transition. So pray for them. Uh, they've got a lot of details to cover, find a place to live, uh, say goodbye to the folks there, and uh, and then also just the, the new here. Of course, they'll hit the ground running, and we're super excited for that. So continue to pray for Jackson and, and Audrey. Today's message is a follow-up to the series that we just completed of first importance from 1 Corinthians 15. You know, every Sunday when we gather for worship, we include a time or a way for anyone to respond to the good news of Jesus. Most Sundays, we just end our worship singing a song. We call it an invitation song. We invite people to go to the prayer room, and you can meet privately and talk with an elder, maybe a Bible question or just a, a private prayer or whatever you may need. But the invitation of Jesus is always open. You know, that said, some of our, our sermon topics are not focused on salvation. They're more focused on knowing God better or maybe discipleship or equipping the saints to walk more and more like Jesus. But even when the subject is not about salvation, we like to offer that invitation for anybody to say yes to Jesus. Well, today's message is going to focus on what the Bible says we must, be do, we must do to be saved. Now, the one who's not a Christian needs very clear instruction on what they must do to be saved. And the one who's a believer needs to be sure that they have done exactly what God has told them to do in his word. And even if you are a maturing Christian, you've already made this decision, you need to be equipped and ready and able to tell others about the gospel and explain what they need to do to be saved. Tonight in our small groups, we're going to go deeper into all of these. You may remember the story about a man who wanted to be saved. He was told to kneel at the altar and pray through. And while praying, an usher came and gave him a card, told him to fill it out. While he was filling out the card, somebody came up to support him and put their arm around him and said, watch for the light, brother, watch for the light. When I got saved, I saw a light. Another came and said, hold on, brother, hold on. Another said, let go, friend, let go. When he finally finished, he said, between praying through and filling out a card and holding on and letting go and watching for the light, he nearly went to hell. <laughs> what exactly must a person do to be saved? This topic can be loaded with emotions and sometimes closed minds or, or mental obstacles because nobody wants to be wrong. Nobody wants to admit that maybe they misunderstood what the Bible teaches or maybe their parents were wrong or their upbringing is not according to Scripture. But this is more important than feelings or just what you've always believed or what you've been taught. So as we begin, I think it's important that we all agree to do three things. First, let's listen objectively. Don't listen to what I say and see if it measures up to what you think or what you've been taught. Let's open up the Bible and our minds and understand what God tells us to do. And let's study thoroughly 
Let's not just take one scripture and let that be our proof text and base our salvation on that. I truly believe that is maybe the primary reason why there's so much confusion about how a person is to be saved. Let's speak the whole counsel of God, as the Bible says, or rightly divide the word of truth. It's so easy to get one verse out of the Bible and say, that's what this verse says, to be saved. And there are a lot of verses like that, and they say different things. But we need to put all of those together and see what is the picture that the Bible paints about salvation. I think about it like this. If somebody was unfamiliar with Columbia, and they asked me, well, where's the post office? Well, if you're in this room, I'd say, what's the other side of that parking lot? But if you're at Neely's Mill or Neapolis, I would give different answers to that question. And that's what you see in Scripture when dealing with salvation. It depends on who the person is and where they are, their position. Because where are they in their knowledge of God? Where are they in their obedience to God? And so it's not conflicting information. It's just helping people wherever they are to find God and to obey his word. Well, third, let's go to the right source for the answer. The Bible is our source of authority. And it's the place that we begin But even in Scripture, we've got to begin at the right place. And that is after Jesus died and came back from the grave. That's what we've been talking about these last couple of months. A Christian is one who follows the resurrected Christ. So when we're talking about becoming a Christian, we can read through the Gospels and understand stories like Nicodemus or or, or Jesus and the woman at the well or the thief on the cross. But all of those people died under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Not after Jesus came back from the grave. So the place for us to begin is immediately after his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why the book of Acts is the appropriate place to begin our study. So open your Bibles to the book of Acts. The verses are going to be on the screen as well. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their gospels tell us about Jesus, who he is, why he came, and a lot of his teachings. But in Acts, the Holy Spirit tells us, what happened after Jesus ascended to heaven and as the church began. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples began to speak publicly about this risen Lord. Peter was the chief spokesman. In Acts chapter 2, look in verse 22, just a little bit of his message there. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then skip down to verses 36 to 38. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. From the beginning of Christianity, I want us to see two things, really. If you're looking at the study guide there, the outline, the back of the bulletin, you kind of follow along. Two things we do in our 
becoming a Christian, deciding to be saved, accepting his salvation. It's like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.1. It's on the screen. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. And he goes on in verse 2 saying, by this gospel, you are saved. What is this gospel that saves us? Well, he continues in verse 3 and 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the first thing we do is to believe. We believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they heard Peter, they say, what shall we do? That was the question. What shall we do? Why? Why did they ask that question? Because they believed the facts that was just presented to them. That this Jesus that they had crucified was both Lord and Christ. And now God had raised him from the dead and he's in heaven. The gospel is the good news that the creator of the universe has come down to heaven to save us. That's what the good news is all about. And even though every one of us has defiantly disobeyed his commands and deserve his wrath, God loves us. He knows we need a savior. So he came to earth in the form of Jesus. He died for our sins, all of us, and all of our sins. He rose from the grave, and now he offers to cleanse us of our guilt and our sins and to give us the promise of life after death. And there's more good news. All of this is free of charge. It's paid in full. Jesus paid it all. It's his gift. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It explains it so well. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the first step is faith, is belief, to believe the gospel. Jesus said this when he was trying to talk about this coming kingdom. John 3, 16. You know this. It's on the screen. Say it with me. For God so loved the world... He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. It's key. That's where it begins. I like the way George Mark Elliott would explain to his students this concept of belief. He would say, I'm going to reach into my drawer and I'm going to pull out something here. It might be a piece of chalk or a penny or a paper clip. I'm going to put it in my hand and, and you tell me what it is. And so he would do that. He would reach in, he would grab something and hold it up. And he'd call a guy from the class to come up and look at it and tell him what it was. And said, well, he looked and saw it was a penny. And he said, tell, tell the class what it is. And the young man said, it's a penny. And so George Mark said, how many of you believe that? Well, some of them raised their hand and some of them didn't. So then he opened his hand and he showed the whole class the penny. And he said, now, how many of you believe that I'm holding a penny in my hand? And they all raised their hand, 100% of them. And he said, that's not faith. That's knowledge. That's knowing. That's different from belief. I like the way the Bible defines faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Look on the screen. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
The conviction of things not seen. That's belief. We can't show an instant replay of Jesus coming out of the grave. We don't have that. We can't prove from our computers that the Bible is true. But God has given us more than enough evidence that we can believe with eyes of faith. The testimony of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. And all the stories of Jesus interacting with people. So much credible evidence to believe. We have the testimony of martyrs. All of those who died saying Jesus came back from the grave and he's alive. He's given us the Bible. He's given us the church. He's given us a calendar. He's given us changed lives. He's given us answered prayer. You choose to believe. You choose to believe based on the evidence. It's your choice. We talked about this last week. To believe, though, is not just mental agreement or assent. It's not just casually saying, yes, there is a God. I know that. I believe that. To believe is to be completely committed to Jesus. To trust his gospel to completely save you. Real faith involves action. You know, when tornadoes are in the forecast, warnings are everywhere. There used to be a time where we wanted the sirens to be in our community, but now it can come straight to your phone wherever you are to know, hey, there's a warning, take notice. But do you take notice? You ever gone to bed and you've silenced your phone because you didn't want to hear the alarm? See, even if there's warnings, you choose whether you want to hear them, believe them, or not. Did any of you see the video this past week of that car that was lifted and just flipped by the tornado? So scary. I remember always hearing, you should get out of your car and run to the ditch. I thought, no. I'm not. Did you think that way too? Who wants to go run in a ditch in the middle of a tornado coming? I'll just stay in my car. I've changed my mind on that. Watching that car flip so many times. If you believe, you respond. You take cover. Belief results in action. It's not enough just to believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave. To believe is to trust his word, all of it, and to obey his command to be saved. Look at the screen at James 2.20. James says, faith apart from works is useless. Which brings us really to the second response. And that is, we respond to Jesus. So first, we believe the gospel. And then secondly, we respond to the gospel. We respond to Jesus. Now, if I were to win a sweepstakes for a million dollars, you know what? You would never see me again. No, that's not true. But just think about that. If you win the sweepstakes for a million dollars... They don't just show up at your door with a million dollars in small bills and say, thank you very much, and walk away. It doesn't happen that way. I mean, you've got to sign a check. They're going to transfer the funds. I'm sure you're going to sign some paperwork. The IRS is going to be right behind them saying, okay, we get a good chunk of that. I mean, we understand all of that. It still would not be earned It would be a gift, but you have to respond. You have to show up. You have to sign the paperwork. You have to go through what is required. You do something to receive it. Salvation is a free gift, but God's not going to save you against your will. He's not just going to drop it in your lap. 
you have to respond to his salvation. So from Scripture, there's three things that Jesus requires us to do. This is straight from Jesus. And we see this lived out in the book of Acts. The first response is to repent of sin. And it really starts here. Once you believe the gospel, then the very next step then is, is, is you repent of sin. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 46 through 47. Thus it is written, the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. And look at this, verse 47, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That's why back in Jerusalem, when the people asked Peter, what shall we do? The first thing out of Peter's mind is repent. Obviously, they believe the message. He got that, so he says, repent is what you need to do. And the more you understand the gospel, the more you understand the gospel, the more you understand your own sinfulness. You know, every Sunday when we gather to worship and we take that bread and we take that cup and we remember the price of our sin, it's like the gospel is relived and we commit again and we're aware that Jesus paid it all. When you listen to the words of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about this coming kingdom, you realize your life doesn't measure up. Everything he's describing, you're, you're not there. And you quickly see that your sin is no trivial matter. It is your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And our world is becoming so sinful. You've seen this more and more. Our world is becoming so blatantly, boldly sinful that even people who are not believers in Jesus are saying, wait a minute, something's wrong. Are, are you seeing that? Are you hearing that too? I mean, everybody's just going, wait, wait, wait. Can you imagine how you'd react if you were frozen in time 25 years ago and then thawed and plopped into today? And what you hear going on, just shocked. Something's wrong. Tom Peters wrote an article in Business First on business ethics, and among his recommendations, listen to his words. People... Even saints are egocentric and selfish, and any framework in action had best take into account the, listen to this, troublesome but immutable fact of man's inherently flawed character. He's not a theologian, he's a journalist. I don't even know his faith background, but even he's acknowledging something is wrong. We have a sin problem. And there's a sense of wrongness that pervades all of our culture today. The Bible calls it sin. It's very point blank about that. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, it's going to destroy you. And this repentance is for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus, think about it. When he came, that was his message. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. That's how he began his message. And repent, you know this. It means change direction. It means change your mind, change your thinking. You turn and begin to walk in obedience to his will. That idea of that Greek word means to change your mind as well as your attitude, as well as your actions. So if your attitude was cynical, now it's teachable. If you were proud and arrogant, now you're submissive and humble. That's what repentance means. 
I like the story of a woman who bought a new shirt for her husband, and the tag said, shrink resistant. And she asked the clerk, what does that mean, shrink resistant? And the clerk explains that it will shrink, but it doesn't want to. That's not unlike what it means to be a Christian. Does a Christian sin? Yes, but he doesn't want to. It happens, but we're doing our best. We're trying. We've repented. We follow a risen Savior. The mind has changed. That's repentance. And the call to repentance is not a popular message. It involves three words. You've heard me say this before, but I think it's good reminding. Conviction. That's the first part. I know I'm wrong. I admit that I'm wrong. A repentant person admits, I have sinned. I am guilty. When David was confronted with his adultery, he admitted to God, I have sinned. But then secondly is contrition. You can say, I'm wrong, but how do you feel about that? Is there remorse? Are you sorry for it? When Richard Ramirez, the night stalker responsible for all the L.A. Kings, the L.A. uh, uh, murders years ago, Newsweek magazine reported the first thing out of his mouth after he was convicted was this, big deal. Death comes with the territory. See you in Disneyland. That's not contrition. That's not remorse. A repentant person is not defiant. Instead, there's brokenness and sometimes even tears. That's what Psalm 34 verse 18 is describing. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When we look at the cross and understand that that happened, the cross happened because me Because of my sin, then there's contrition, there's remorse. We're sorry for our sins. Conviction, contrition, and the third is change. Repentance is is more than just feeling sorry and remorse. It's, it's, It's more than just tears. It's transformation. Judas Iscariot felt sorry for betraying Jesus. You remember this. Look at Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. That's touching to read, isn't it? He was so overcome with remorse. He he gave the money back, but evidently not enough to change. Because scripture tells us he took his life. That same night, Peter felt remorse for denying Jesus three times. Both of them turned their back. But a month later, this Peter that had denied Jesus three times is when standing in front of the tens of thousands, proclaiming boldly that Jesus is Lord. His life was transformed. To repent means to go in the opposite direction. And all of us are called to repentance. I was deceptive in business, now I'm honest. I once cheated in school, now I tell the truth. I used to be harsh with or neglected my wife. Now I'm tender and attentive. I once was consumed with addiction, but now I'm clean, I'm sober, I'm free. One man said this prayer, Lord, we thank you that we can come to you just as we are, but remind us, Lord, that we dare not leave as we came. Jesus requires repentance, a turning from sin. Well, a second response is confession. Again, Jesus taught this, and again, we see it lived out in the book of Acts. Confession of faith. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth you confess and are saved. I don't know if you've thought about this, but when Jesus died, he died publicly. This was not a, a private assassination that nobody knew about. He was crucified during the day on a hill so others could see during a Jewish feast period where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would have been in the town to hear, to know, even witness it. The Bible helps us to know that his death was not done in, a, in, a, in, a, in secret. It was not done in hiding. And when you come to accept Jesus, he asked for you to publicly admit that you believe. You believe in this good news, in this gospel. You know, what father doesn't love to hear his, his child say, that's my dad? What parent is not proud of their child, especially when they accomplish something? in their grades, on the field, in some way. You see the bumper stickers about, you know, my son and my money go to this school. We're proud because we have that connection. That's what we're talking about here. When you come to accept Jesus, you're not ashamed to say, He is my Lord. He is my everything. I live for Him. Listen to Jesus' words, Matthew 10, verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So this belief in the good news, this belief in the gospel brings repentance, it brings confession, and it also brings baptism. Because again, Jesus talked about this. In Acts chapter 2, the people ask Peter, what, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized. He mentioned both of those. Think about this. And the parallel is, in, in many ways, of a marriage ceremony. Have you ever compared the, your baptism to a marriage ceremony? There's a lot that goes on in the relationship before the marriage. I mean, you met, you got to know each other. There's the type of courtship and dating. You get to know the family. You make a commitment to be exclusive just to each other. And then, of course, there's lots that go on after the ceremony. But there's something about a marriage, whether it's just, you know, two or three, a very private wedding, or, or hundreds in a very public wedding. But the marriage is that moment. Is it not? You know what I'm talking about? We say, that's when we got married. You're not saying that's when we first met. Of course not. And that's when the, we got married, it became official. Sometimes people say, after a wedding, have you heard this? I don't feel any different. Do you? Do you feel married? You may not feel different, but you are. You're married, legally, in front of all those witnesses. God gave baptism as a ceremony uniting our lives with him. Now, even with that, there's a lot that goes on before. Think about that. Maybe you grew up in a, in a Christian home where you, you went to church. Maybe there are other people in your life. Maybe you go to a Christian school where you heard Jesus talked about. Maybe there are others where you, you heard. Maybe you had good examples in your life. You come to understand and love him. But then you make your commitment to follow him. And there's even lots that goes on after your baptism, 
It's not the end. It's really just the, it marks the beginning of your relationship. You continue to grow in your faith. You lead others to him. You mature in your own discipleship. But baptism is that benchmark. Baptism is that moment that notes that transition in our lives. And in so many scriptures, just a few I'll share that kind of share this. Romans 6, verses 1 through 3. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You see the incredible symbolism there? He's not comparing it to a marriage. He's comparing it to a death. Just as Jesus died, we die, and we are raised to walk a new life. Look at the screen at the final words of Jesus to his disciples before he descended. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, if, if Jesus had asked us to, in order to be saved, to, to march around the building seven times or, or to fast for a week or, or to give, you know, a thousand dollars, we would do whatever he asked us to do. But none of those make sense. None of those have any kind of meaning or symbolism. But baptism, think about it, it makes sense. Because it's a beautiful symbol of what's happening. It symbolizes our death to sin, our burial with Christ, and our new life, our renewal with Him. It symbolizes cleaning. Write down 1 Peter 3.21, that's a great scripture that talks about that aspect. It symbolizes our humility. Our dignity gets drenched. One man said he loves baptism because it's the great equalizer. And it's true. You can be wearing the most expensive clothes, very fine jewelry. You may have a cut and curl, ladies, and a, and a, a design that's hundreds of dollars. But when you go into that water, you're not wearing those nice clothes. The jewelry's coming off, and that $100 hair is in deep, deep trouble. But when you come out... When you come out, it's new, it's fresh, it's clean. You've been washed, and you're one with the Lord. You know, one of the things that gives us joy is, like we did with Allison this morning, we give a Bible, and we pray, and we encourage. But even when we witness a baptism, there's something about all of us. It's like going to a wedding. When, when you get married, if you, if you are married or have been married, you think about your own wedding. Or maybe even dream of one day being married. When you see somebody being baptized or hear of somebody being baptized, you kind of go back to your own, that moment, that moment of truth when you said, yes, 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 I believe. I'm with you, Lord. Baptism is such a tangible act. You know, we can't really see directly faith. We can't see directly repentance. We see the fruit of it. With baptism, we witness that. And because of that, Here's the other way the pendulum sometimes swings. Sometimes, sometimes we emphasize baptism so much and think that's what saves us. No, Jesus saves us. We're saved by faith through grace. That's what Ephesians 2 says, tells us. That belief or that doctrine is called baptismal regeneration. You've probably heard that before. What do I have to do to be saved? If it's just a matter of getting dunked, I think about this. How many kids have practiced baptism in the in the tub 
or in the pool. It's more than that. We know that. We know that. It's more than just a ritual. It's more than just getting wet. Sometimes people get confused about their baptism because they, they will sin after they're baptized and think, wait a minute, it didn't take, or I need to be baptized again. That's not what Scripture teaches us. Sometimes people misunderstand the faith requirement that Scripture points out, and they baptize infants. What you read about in Scripture is a believer's baptism, that first response, you believe the gospel. That's what Scripture tells us. The one who's genuinely repented of sin. Some go the other extreme, and they downplay baptism and think about it as even an afterthought. They don't want to, uh, to give the impression that, that, that we earn our salvation, a work salvation. And I understand that concern. So instead of people to, to repent, be baptized, as Peter did in Acts chapter 2, they'll say, well, hey, you, you, you say this prayer. And I think about that, and I think, well, if you do that, that's more of a work than baptism. Because you say the prayer. In baptism, you don't baptize yourself. Somebody else does it to you or, or for you. You submit. You give your life to the Lord. It's not a work. It's a powerful symbol of humility and cleansing. So you may have some questions about your baptism. If you're baptized as an infant, do I need to do that again? Do I need to be immersed because now I believe the gospel? Or maybe I was sprinkled at age 12 and I wasn't buried, I wasn't immersed, as Scripture teaches. Do I need to be baptized again? I would say your salvation is, is between you and God. But a lot of how that question is answered is really your attitude. Are you looking at what's the least I have to do to get by? Or what's the most the Lord requires of me that I can please him? Do you want to become a Christian? Do you want to be saved? Consider this analogy. I talked about tornadoes a moment ago. You know, the weather is saying it's going to rain. It's just going to rain yesterday. Did y'all watch that? And it was such a pretty day. And I thought about that because I was thinking about this analogy. We do the same thing with tornadoes, don't we? Tornado's coming. The twister's coming. It's in Mount Pleasant. It's headed our way. And there's some of us that hear that, and we go to the safe spot, don't we? And the, there's others that think, I've got time to run an errand. <laughs> or I'm at least turn on the TV, and I'm going to keep going. Same storm's coming. We're hearing the same report. If you heard a report like that, would you say, you know, years ago, a tornado hit my parents' house. They didn't see it coming, and they were okay. So I don't have to go and seek shelter. Or, you know, they're saying go to your basement. I've got a basement. My neighbors don't have a basement. If they don't have a basement to go to, why should I go to my basement? If I see a tornado coming, I'm going to our safe spot, and I might let Celia in if she gets there quick enough. <laughs> Isn't that silly? It is silly, isn't it? We can be so petty. How often are all of us guilty of seeing what's the least I have to do to get by? Instead of saying, God, I'm yours. You gave yourself completely for me. I'm going to give myself completely to you. What do you want? Brothers, what shall we do?
Peter said, repent and be baptized. If you go to heaven, folks, you're going there face first. You're going intentionally. Last week when we talked about the return, it's those who are looking for him. Those are the ones he's coming for. Those who are looking for him. Because you're ready. You believe the good news. You've repented of your sins. You've confessed your faith. You've been baptized. And every day that he tarries, you're waiting. That the Lord's coming back. And until then, we're commissioned to tell as many as people as possible about this Jesus who came to save us all. That's our commission. That's our invitation. If you need Jesus, the song is to encourage you. If you need a prayer, whatever we can do to help you, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?